makes me think of the uh, season that the uh, Jewish folks have in uh, like the synagogue uh, today when a certain uh, time of the year they read the book of Esther. And when they read the book of Esther, when they come to Haman, the guy who wanted to kill Mordecai and destroy the Jews, when they read that publicly, when they come to his name, they all go boo and hiss, you know? And I think when we watch this series, when we got the bad guys, we ought to go, all of us go boo and hiss, and then the good guys, we just listen attentively. Is that a good plan? Not a good plan. Okay. Gospel of John. Well, the Bible is a good plan, so let's, let's get there. Proverbs 16.9, speaking of plans, says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So, Marshall and I, our plan for the Gospel of John has been to start in the first chapter, the early verses that present to us the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his deity, and all of his eternality as the second person of the triune God, likewise with the fact of his becoming flesh. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. And so we've covered those very important verses in what is called that prologue uh, to the beginning of the Gospel of John. And then now having listened to John by the Holy Spirit, present the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Then our plan now is to move toward the display of his glory and of his power and of his being truly God in what is called the sign miracles of the Gospel of John that he selects in the writing of his gospel. Now, you remember at the end of the gospel of John, John tells us with all of the words and all of the wonders of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's not enough books, not enough bookshelves in all of the world to contain everything that Jesus did and everything that he said. But these ones that he has selected for us are for the very purpose of us knowing, seeing him, watching him, listening to him. I come to the Gospels, and I always thank God that we have the Gospels that we get to see Christ, watch him, and hear from him. How sad it would be. We would thank God for any part of the Scriptures that we had, but we're so grateful to have the Gospels that reveal the very one of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? And John says, okay, there's, there's a certain ones that I've selected for you that I, I want you to observe Christ in all of his glory. And each one of those ones that were given in the Gospel of John teach us something else about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have in chapter 2 is the first one that John uh, records for us. And you might even notice in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, this beginning of his signs Jesus did. But I want you to go to chapter 2, verse 1, just to kind of begin here with what's going on in this particular section. It says, on the third day. So let's be faithful to set the context of what's going on here. This is the third day after the Lord Jesus Christ has selected some of his men. If you turn back, A little bit farther in chapter 1, verse 35, just setting the scene now of this event. It says, again, the next day. Well, if we move back previous to that, we have a delegation of the Jews who come to John the Baptist and they ask him, who are you? 
And are you the Christ? And he makes it clear, I am not the Christ, but I'm one sent by God to prepare the way for him. And that's why we look at chapter 1, verse 23. 123. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And then on the next day, look at verse 29. A following day we have. Next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Here he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we get to verse 35 and we've got again another day. Another day, John, that is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he was walking, as he walked, and he said, again, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they now followed who? Everybody say, they followed who? Now they're following Jesus. And in the next verses, we've got Peter and Andrew, and following that, we've got uh, Nathaniel and Philip that are mentioned. At least four, probably John and uh, his brother James, although not mentioned here, but I'd say at least those. Maybe more that are not mentioned, but it is his disciples with him. So we're very early here, and we have a number of days from John, and he is in the area, verse 28, chapter 1. Hang in there with me, verse 28. The things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where he was baptizing. But when we get over here a few days later in chapter 2, Verse 1, look there now. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And Cana in Galilee is very close to Nazareth of Galilee. In fact, most understand the the primary place they see as uh, Cana as probably about eight, maybe nine miles from Nazareth. So I would say this is somewhat Jesus' home turf that this is taking place. And... In that area, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, third day, there's a wedding, Cain of Galilee. Then the text tells us the mother of Jesus, Mary, was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to this particular wedding. Now we're at a wedding scene there at Cana. And much of John's focus is has Jesus in his, what we call his Galilean ministry. Do you remember that John, the bulk of the gospel of John, is new information from John, and his focus is the Galilean, while the other gospels tend to focus on his Judean ministry there in the area of Jerusalem. So he's filling in a lot of blanks in particular events that take place that he gives to us. And here's a key one because it's a first one in terms of Jesus going to demonstrate in a miraculous way of who he is. So Jesus and his disciples, along with Mary, they're invited to this wedding. Some suppose there's a potential here that Mary and the family of Jesus might have been related to the uh, to the couple that are going to be to this marriage scene that's taking place. Others suggest, and I think more likely it's the fact that these people are just known and these are small, small communities. And so they're just part of the group that's been invited there. Either way, the text tells us Mary's invited, Jesus and his men are invited to this particular happy, key 
social event in the first century among the Jewish people. This was a big, this was a big event, a, a wedding that would take place. And the couple who would be experiencing the, uh, the, the, the things that take place at the gathering and with the celebration, there would also be the vows that would be exchanged, and they have been betrothed to one another for months. But now it's the big day. And it's a big day when you have a wedding in your family, but I don't know of anybody in our day and age that had a wedding that lasted at least a week. Do you anybody like that? But in the first century, these were big events that went on for the whole week and sometimes longer. That's bigger than a Baptist banquet. Amen? I mean, this is going on. A great celebration that's taking place. And now this couple, the, the groom and his and his friends are going to go get the bride, bring him to this event, and then take him to his own home. And, and it's the, 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 the marriage is that contractual engagement now, it's brought to its conclusion with the two agreeing to be husband and wife and the consummation of the, of the wedding itself. Just a wonderful event that's, that's taking place at this time. Now, there's going to be this event, this, this miracle that's going to take place at a wedding. Why a wedding? Why here? And as I've thought and as I've reflected upon this, I've thought about the fact that we look at it just on a human level, and Jesus has called his men, and he's beginning his ministry. If he was like us, and he's not, though he's fully man, but fully God, I think if he was like us, he'd say, we don't have any time for a wedding. i got to get this on. I've been called to initiate. I've only got three years for this. We need to get it on. Doesn't that sound like us? Just one person say amen. Does that sound like us? But he, no, Jesus' Jesus' timetable of what's taking place is sovereignly decreed, and it's to begin right here at this precious event that's taking place. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in the wedding that the groom and his family takes care of the wedding. In our custom today, it's the family of the bride. And I wish we were more biblical because I've already had three daughters get married. But it would, we're going to see, it's, it, it's the groom and his family will provide for all of this. So I'm just saying, it's, a, it's just a glorious event. And I, I can't think of anything better for Jesus to initiate his ministry because what is more sacred, what is more significant, what is more holy to Jesus Christ, second person of the triune God, who created all things, than the institution of marriage? What's better than that? It's going to be a miracle that's going to take place of two becoming one flesh. The only thing that I can think of an institution or a miracle better than the reality of, a, of a two people becoming one flesh is the miracle of regeneration, to which Jesus Christ is the answer for that. So I think this is just a wonderful occasion in the perfect providence of God that has been decreed that Jesus is going to initiate things at the midst of a wonderful celebration. In fact, I just wanted to mention a couple of things with reference to a wedding and the beauty and joy of it and the person of Jesus Christ. A wedding is about a celebration and about joy. Would you agree with me about that? I mean, <laughs> you married people better say Amen. Some of you young people, uh, when uh, Deborah and I celebrate our anniversaries, it's her habit to, um, and I appreciate it, she gets the wedding photos out. Now, I want to just 
This is before smartphones, you understand? We have wedding photos. Those are like pictures on, on paper. of our, And there's a whole bunch of the pictures of the day of our wedding prior and the family and everybody getting ready. And there's my grandpa and grandma. And, and everybody's got smiles and everybody's just, it's just a wonderful day. Remember? Well, we've got photos to that event. And it ought to be with reference. Hey, if you're getting married and it's not a celebration, you need to talk to one of the elders here at PBC, okay? <laughs> All that's going on. There's joy. There's great joy. And if joy is found anywhere, the wedding, it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he does in, in our lives. And I pulled out a passage from Peter here. It's in the context of trusting God amidst trials, okay? I don't want to pull it out of the context without saying that. Peter's talking, in fact, the whole book of First Peter is about suffering and trials, but look at this wonderful passage that is given to us in 1 Peter with reference to joy. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And you're going to find real joy one place in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? It's also about a miracle. I mentioned that a moment ago. Every time I do a wedding, I'm standing in the presence of a, of, of a miracle that's going to take place by the authority of God's Word, not me, and we're not performing a miracle, but we're stating one. We're repeating the words that are given to us by the very God of heaven, declaring by the state of Indiana, making it legal, but by the higher authority of God himself, I get to say this. Now, you two are one flesh. In Jesus Christ. That is, a, that is a miracle in the sense from God's perspective, now we're one. We're one flesh in him, and yet two individually at the same time. So wedding's about a miracle, and it's going to be a miracle here of water being turned to, to wine. And in Christ we have the greatest miracle is the miracle of the new life and, and regeneration. Third, I just want to mention if there's a place ever that Jesus Christ is needed it's at a wedding. It's at a wedding. Just like you and I individually, two people together that are going to be married need to build their life not on sinking sand, their home, but on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two sinners who know Christ as Savior and have Christ seated on the throne of both the husband, his heart, and the heart of the wife. If there's a need for Christ, and so often today, weddings are social occasions rather than sacred events, but I'm here to tell you, Christ is there. It's a sacred event, and Christ needs to be real in the lives of those two people, and in doing marriage counseling, if you have to get it down just to one thing, here's what you need. You both need Christ being preeminent in your life and on the seat of your heart. Everybody say amen to that? And that when he's there, you know the old diagram example, right? And as we grow in grace, the closer we get to Christ, the closer we are growing to one another. So I just think it's so graciously providential that God places this particular miracle in the midst of, in the midst of a wedding. Now there's a crisis next that we're going to read about. Look with me at our text. Look with me at our text. Third day, wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Everything's happy. 
all these people, joyous occasion. And then verse 3 says, but when the wine ran out. Now there's the crisis. There's the crisis. At this joyous occasion, they run out of provision of wine for all of the guests. And this would be a tremendous embarrassment to the groom and to his family. As a matter of fact, in the fourth century, fourth century, in the first century, in the midst of a context of a, of a Jewish wedding like this, if you didn't come through in the provision for the guests, you could be sued. Now think about that. Maybe I haven't convinced you yet this is a crisis. So let, let me just give you a, another example. Let's say you're invited to a wedding, and with the invitation, there's an RSVP that there's going to be a dinner at the reception. I like those kind of weddings. The wedding and then dinner. Amen to that? Okay, there's going to be a dinner, and you go to the wedding, and then you go to the reception, and they're seating all the people down, all the different places. There you are at your table and enjoying the fellowship with other people. The people come out. They're serving the food. They get to your table, and they say, I'm sorry, we're out of food. Knowing how much you love food, that would be a crisis. Amen? But it is. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? All planned within the sovereignty of God, what's going to take place. Now, you and I know, or I trust you know, or I'll tell you this morning, there are two major crops, among others, with reference to uh, the Jewish people in Palestine in early years. One was olives for their oil, and the other one was grapes for, for the juice. And you also know they didn't have refrigerators, correct? So without refrigeration, the grape juice would begin to ferment, producing what? Everybody say the word. Producing what? Wine. Which the Jews then would take and they would dilute at least four to one with water, oftentimes more than that, to stretch it out. Now, because of the lasting embarrassment to the groom and family, the illustration that I gave to you about no food at your table, from the days forward from that, you would say, oh yeah, I remember that wedding. It's when we didn't get our food. Amen? This would be a lasting embarrassment to this family. So it was a crisis from a human perspective and even leading the opening to be fined, as I mentioned. So Mary has a solution. She's there. When the wine ran out, verse 3, here comes Mary. And she comes to Jesus, and she tells him, what? Hey, they have no wine. What are we going to do here? Now, she brings the problem to Christ. He's been made aware of it. And perhaps she's involved in the serving or one of the key people that's helping or just like a good mom tends to do, tends to be involved in helping and serving people however she can. But she's expecting something. Now, at this point, did she expect him to perform a miracle? I don't know. The text doesn't say that. But the text does tell us she came to Jesus with, with the problem. And if anybody knows who Jesus really is, it's Mary. It's Mary. 
I love that passage in the book of Luke. I'm not going to take time to turn there, but it's in Luke chapter 2. It's when they come back from the, uh, uh, they didn't find Jesus. Remember on the, when he's 12 years old and at the temple and he's, he's interacting with the rabbis and he's probably answering their questions. And as that's going on and they're a, few day, a couple days out and then they realize, where's Jesus? They come back. They could say, how could you have done this to us? And Jesus said, didn't you know I need to be about my father's things? And then it tells us, they're heading back. It tells us Mary treasured all these things where in her heart. What were all those things? Virgin birth. Presentation at the temple. There's Simeon and Anna. This is the consolation of Israel. Your son, Jesus. Magi comes from another part of the world to worship him, Jesus Christ. All the events knowing this is, this is Jesus and knowing he is the Messiah and being anxious about the fact of what he's going to do. And I think what he's going to announce. So here she brings the problem to him. She comes to him. And what does he say? Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with, notice, with us? With us. Now, at a glance, that can, this can come off maybe almost disrespectful, but it's anything other than that. But it is a polite, very mild rebuke to Mary. When he calls her woman, he's reminding her of something. And it is not rejecting the fact that she is precious to him, and this is his mother, but he is reminding her of something right now that is different. And what is different now is this is not Jesus, her son. This is Jesus, her Savior. This is, this is the Messiah. And she's going to have to now relate to him just like every other sinner is going to relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, not only does he say, woman, and by the way, I think a great paraphrase here would be ma'am. It'd just be ma'am. I like it when you go to the South, you hear every, young people refer to men as, as sir and women as ma'am. We need more of that here in our culture, do we not? Any parents want to say amen to that? But he's saying like ma'am, he's saying, it's very respectful, but it's a moderate, very moderate, can I say, very gracious, gentle rebuke to his dear mother. It's different now. It's different now. And, and notice he says to us, him and his men, I like the way uh, Wearsby paraphrases this, the way he says things. He paraphrases Jesus' statement in saying this, Ma'am, why are you getting me involved in this? <laughs> why come to me with this? But I think she's excited about the very fact, knowing who he is, if this is the time. So, polite, but Jesus remains her son, but he is also her Savior, who is the Son of God and the promised Messiah. So Mary must now relate to Jesus as every other person, every other sinner. Her Son is the Son of God who came to die for sinners. And he makes that statement. We're all familiar with it, aren't we? In chapter 2, verse 4, Woman, or ma'am, what does that have to do with us? Why are you having me involved in this. Now, we don't want to lose the fact 
that at the same time, Jesus knows all things. And this is divinely planned, but on a human level, we can learn something here. He's saying, wait a minute, look at the end of verse 4, which is key to the Gospel of John. Ten times in the Gospel of John, what does he say? My what? My hour hasn't come. Now, we know the ultimate reality of his hour is fulfilled at the cross. Amen? But I don't think he's talking about the cross right here. I think he's talking about the hour of his full-blown presentation as the Christ. And I want to defend what I'm saying with the Scriptures, so it's not an opinion but an understanding having studied this. Turn with me over into chapter 7. Turn with me over to chapter 7. So I think Jesus is saying, wait a, minute, Mary, wait a minute, Mary, it's not about your timetable, it's about my timetable. It's about the time that God has sovereignly decreed that I go to Jerusalem and this is full-blown full presentation of me as the Christ. Ultimately, his hour is fulfilled, though, in the cross when his hour takes place of, of the purpose to which he came to die on the cross. John chapter 7, if you're there in the text, would you say amen? Wow, that was exciting. Would you say amen one more time? Amen. There's almost some Baptists in the crowd. Chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. And therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go. Now this is brothers. This is his brothers. This is not brethren in the faith. This is his biological brothers with the same mom. His brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then we're told why they're saying that in verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now notice next words. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here. But your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. So go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because, notice again, my time has not yet fully come. Now one more time, I realize the fullness of that. Turn with me over to John chapter 17. Is the hour of the cross, but there's also a time that he is openly, publicly, in a very obvious way to which he is declaring his messiahship. Now, John chapter 1, now we're near that hour of the cross, aren't we? John 17, I'm sorry, John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things after lifting up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, what's his next words? Now the hour's here. Now we're hours away from it. And we get closer, and he bore this burden. Since the time that he knew, as a young man, what was going on? It's coming. It's coming. What is it? Comes to that very point where he's in the garden and he's praying. What does he pray? Oh, Father, if it be your will, what? Deliver me from this. 
But then he says what? Not your, not my will, but what? Your will be done. I want to just remind you for that purpose that our Lord Jesus Christ bore that burden of what was coming from the time of the beginning of his ministry prior to that. I think when he's even figuring things out at 12 years old in the temple, he knew why he came. And the intensity of that is building and building and building and building. You ever have something coming in front of you and, and, and you don't want to do it on a human level and it gets closer and closer to that particular event? That's what's happening with Jesus with the burden of the cross. But all of the while, it's not going to be his will. It, it, it's, it's going to be the Father's will because the Father and the Son are in full agreement that he's going to come to this earth and he's going to experience the full agony of the cross for sinners like you and I. So there he is. His hour had not yet come. And again, I believe that what he's saying to Mary is, you know that I, who I am, but it's not the time yet for that to be full-blown. But there will be, ultimately, the fullness of that. And by the way, on John chapter 19, turn there with me, please. John chapter 19. We see that term used again, don't we? I think, yes, John 19, verse 26. If you ever see me sweating up here, it's because I make reference to a verse and then I can't find it. <laughs> Chapter 19, verse 26, but I found it. <laughs> 20, let's, 26, when, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, what? Woman. There it is again. Behold your son, your son and your Savior. From that hour, the disciple, John always refers to himself that way, took her into his own household. So Mary, it's not, it's not your, your will, it's, it's the divine will. It's not your timing, it's my timing. My hour's not yet come. Why do you involve us in this on a human level, but on a divine level? That is exactly what God planned for her to ask. Now, notice verse 5, back to chapter 2, verse 5. Because we have the best counsel we'll ever read in the Bible right here. Best counsel we'll ever read. Verse 5, so then what happens? His mother said to the servants, here it is, whatever he says to you, do it. That's great counsel. Can you say amen to that? Whatever he says, you, you do it. Now, what, what's going on here? I think in one sense, Mary accepted Jesus' words, but she also takes the liberty, if I can say it this way, to make an appeal to him knowing who he is. So Jesus said it wasn't his hour, but somebody that I read said, well, he didn't say, he said it wasn't his hour, but he didn't emphatically say no. So Mary's making the appeal, but at the same time, this is exactly what is to take place here with what's going to take place next. But whatever he says, you do. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? You'll keep my commandments. So what happens? Well, now we have it. Now I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 together. Now we have the event. Now we have the sign miracles that John, by the Spirit of God, determined to write, record for us because of the significance of this being the very first one. So look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots sent there 
for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. They're pretty big. And Jesus said to them, that is the servants, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, though John tells us, the servants knew, the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. They took it to the head waiter, and the head waiter called the bridegroom. And what does he say to him? And he said, every man serves the good stuff, the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, and he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good, the best, until now. Now, we've got these mentioned in verse 6, that there were six stone water pots for purification, 20 or 30 gallons each. That's a lot. And there would be a lot of water there other than this particular water for what is mentioned in verse 6, and that is this whole idea that was a very, very big deal. And you read that later in Jesus and his interaction with the Jews and the Pharisees, and it's about purification. And they're always concerned about what kind of purification, what kind of cleansing out here. And Jesus points out to them, while they're always focusing on the purification out here, they're missing the purification where? Right here, in the heart. And so, well, in our Lord's day and of his people, I'll tell you what, now you know we go to the stores and the uh, hand sanitizer is like 10 cents a bottle. The Jews would buy every store out of that stuff because they were big on man before and after and you come to something, washing the feet and, and uh, the hands and all the utensils and everything else. In fact, I have a quote from, from Mark here that he reminds us of this truth. Mark chapter 7, 3 and 4. I have it on the overhead. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order from the traditions to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and and copper pots. And they're there how many days? At least a week. So there's a whole lot of need for a whole lot of water to be available. And even some of that had been used. And Jesus said, I want you to fill that up. Take some of it out then to the head waiter, and the head waiter tastes it, and he immediately calls the bridegroom, who would be in charge of the provision, and he notes how he apparently did what was uncommon. What was common, the best first, the more diluted later, he did the very opposite. I have a wonderful quote here about R.C. Sproul, because one of the things that has happened in our lifetimes is that many people have written many books and many councils of liberal churches have gotten together and figured out how to take all the miracles out of the Bible. Conferences. Certain denominations have done this. You can read about that. 
So R.C. talks about the fact that he grew up in one of those. Listen to his quote. He says, When I grew up, my minister said, Jesus told the servant to fill the pots and give the people water because, after all, water is the best wine. Isn't it interesting that this minister saw a miracle in the act of turning water into water? It wasn't water. It was water prior. But it was a creation miracle. A creation miracle by the Creator. Some, some refer to this as a, get this, as a minor miracle in comparison to like casting out demons or raising from the dead. But I just want you to do something for me. Would you please define a minor miracle for me? You try this. You see, this is something only God could do. And here he is. John is saying, I want you to catch this. Even right here. Even right here. And one public, we don't see all the head waiter and everybody else come in Christ. More about that in a moment. That's because miracles don't save. But I'll tell you what we're learning in the first hour, and you better mark it and mark it well. If your faith is based in your feelings, you need another experience. And if your faith is based in miracles, you need another miracle and another miracle. But you'll never experience sanctification, real holiness and all of that, because it never changes a life. It's got to be anchored in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But creation miracle. And this large amount of wine that would be like 120 to 180 gallons would more than provide for the wedding guests and probably allow for a gift to the bride and groom to have as theirs. And it's a reminder of God's abundant grace and goodness, how he provides and how he answers prayer exceedingly greater beyond what we'd ever ask or think. Now, one of the observations, just an observation about wine and the Bible, I don't think I need to remind us, but in case somebody wants to point out the fact that wine can be intoxicating. That's why they diluted it. Still, they could take advantage of that. But the Bible clearly condemns drunkenness, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And if you're in Christ today, the Bible clearly says to you, Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. And that word dissipation means unruly, foolish, stupid, uncontrolled behavior. Rather, a child of God is to be controlled by the Spirit of God, living his life under the authority of the Word of God. So I get that. We'll say, well, the wine, if it can be intoxicating, you know, whatever else isn't that bad. Listen, there isn't a good gift that God hasn't given to mankind that he hasn't abused it. Whether it be marriage, whether anything that he's given to us, that's human depravity. But this was a good gift here. And notice, most importantly, what John says in verse 11. In verse 11. This beginning of signs. Simeon is the Greek word. 77 times New Testament, 48 times in the Gospel. John uses it in John, the Gospel of John, more than any other word. Three primary words, listen carefully, signs, Wonders and powers, three different Greek words. Sometimes together, sometimes not. But John's focus is signs. Why? Because it's focusing upon the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Turn over to chapter 4. Here's an example of how one of the other primary words is used. Chapter 4, verse 48. 448. Key word with John. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs, notice, and wonders. Two different words, but they're synonyms in the fact of supernatural events. And so this word that John used is a word that, that conveys the idea of a display of power that catches people's attention. That's all it means here. It's creating attention by something that is beyond a human level. And it causes interest, but it never creates saving belief. Never causes saving belief in and of itself. So the Jews often respond to Jesus, show us another sign, another sign, and another sign. But it was a request in their unbelief. And John tells us there's two results then of this sign in this creation miracle that was noted. Look at verse 11 again. The beginning of his signs Jesus did in Galilee, in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his what? Everybody said He manifested his glory. What? To put his glory on display. What is glory? The glory of God. The glory of God. By the way, do you see that sun coming up today, this morning? It comes up every day. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The sun, sun coming up this morning? I mean, blazing glory. The heavens declare the what? Glory of God. Yes, Matthew 17, transfiguration. There's displays of that, but Jesus, in his veiled glory from time to time, in these works that he did, put on display his deity, his deity. And it's interesting when you trace this word out throughout the Bible, God's glory, his majestic brilliance, his majesty. And you go to the Old Testament and you look at that word in the various contexts, and in the Hebrew it's the word kavak, kavav, kavav. It's a V sound, it's W, but it's a V sound. And, and the definition of that is that it conveys the idea something very heavy and something very weighty. And the idea of that is that the weight has to do with it's something dangerous. Moses said, God, show me your glory. What did God say? You cannot look on my glory and what? And live. So I'll hide you here in this cleft here area. My glory will pass by. But if you see it in all of its fullness as a fallen sinner, you will die because of the radiant, majestic, weighty, fearful glory of God. And yet one day, you and I experience our glorification. We'll take that in with great joy beyond anything else, beyond any sunrise or scene that we'll ever see. But we glimpse it here right, right here with the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and 
And the declaration three times, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What did Isaiah say? Woe is me. And he wasn't talking about horses. He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Because he saw the glory of God. And not in all of its radiance and fullness. Just a vision of it. Our God is something else. He is dangerous. Oh, but more. He is loving. And he is good. And he comes to this earth in Christ, second person of the triune God, because of his concern for people who need to be forgiven and to be one day in glory with him and display his glory and his goodness and his kindness toward us who need, who need a Savior. He manifested his glory. And look at the second thing that it makes reference to in verse 11, and that is, and his disciples, pistuo, they believed in him. You say, well, they got saved. No. If we back up and we look at those verses prior, they've already come and acknowledged he is the Son of God. This is not saving belief. This is, this is sanctifying belief. This is what Marshall and I pray for, for you and ourselves as each time we look at Jesus and what he does, we will be filled with wonder and stronger in our belief in the wonder of who he is. That should happen for you and I. So it's a confirming, strengthening, firsthand knowledge of seeing him, yes. And can I say, John would say from the Gospel of John, you ain't seen nothing yet. More that you're going to behold. But for a saved sinner, for a saved sinner, the more you learn of him, the stronger will be your faith in him. In him. And that's a wonderful thing. So the belief that is based upon a sign miracle is not equivalent to belief as the Son of God in the sense of salvation. Should it have your attention? John says, I sure hope it does. But it doesn't save. It doesn't save. Look with me in chapter, same chapter. Come with me over to verse uh, 21. 21. I want you to see the contrast here. 2.21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body uh, when he spoke about the fact, uh, destroy this temple in three days, raise it up. John said he was talking about his body. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. But verse 22, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they, what? They believed the scriptures, even after. And the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, what? Observing the signs which he was doing. But verse 24 says, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. You see, verse 23 is the word believe. It's a form of the word, common word, pistuo, belief. You see in verse 24 when it says but on Jesus, his part, he was not giving himself or entrusting himself. Everybody with me? You see that? That's the same word, pistuo, but a different form. I have a great quote from one of my favorite teachers that, uh, whoop, I won't go past that. One of my teachers that uh, had a Grace Seminary and, and even spoke at Plainfield Bible Church years ago, and he comments on this text. I want you to note it with me. He said, Our Lord performed other signs which are not described, but which brought immediate response from many. However, John notes that Jesus did not commit himself unto them, 
The text actually uses the word believe. There you see that word, form of the word pastuo. In 2.24, just as in 2.23. The sense is, many believed in Jesus, but Jesus was not believing in them. Their faith was superficial, being based on the miracle they had seen. Jesus knew that unless faith is made to rest in his person, it will not endure. So, you come to Christ, oh yeah, I was uh, driving down the road and I saw a falling star and I knew God was there and I'm a Christian. That's got nothing to do with the gospel. And it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Beloved, don't tell me what you've experienced. Tell me what Christ has done and whether or not it was for you or just a historical event. Now, when they believe then, they are strengthened and praise, praise God for that. Now, John says, yes, many other signs he's done. But these are done that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that then believing you might have life in his, in his name. Thank you for the privilege uh, Wednesday nights, Deborah and I have with your preteens and your teens. They continue to come because we continue to have treats. And we're just grateful for that, all right? This past week, we're, we've spent a lot of time in gaining wisdom from the Proverbs. And we were talking about Proverbs has to say about leadership and about leadership being influence. And for a Christian, influence has to do with character and, and the manner that we, that we live our lives to the glory of God. But then we went and we spent time with Solomon, who was a great, great leader, but he was finite. And we thought about the very fact that there, there's all kinds of leaders, and we took the liberty to ask the guys. It was interesting of their answers, the guys and the gals. Okay, tell me about, so other than the Bible, just tell me about a leader who, in history, you know, who impresses you. <laughs> I just got to tell you. <laughs> One of the kids said, a DeSantis. So where did that, that one come? Where did that one, one of the kids said that? I'm sorry, he's a sinner too, amen? But there one who, there's one who isn't. He ought to be your leader, is he? Because he's your savior. And you're following him today. And you believe not just because of this miracle, but this miracle and all of the gospels, it strengthens your faith because you come here and you say, this is the one that I've, I'm all in with, all in. It's either true, and by the way, the series that we look in this first hour, you notice these guys that we're supposed to say boo to, okay? You notice the Bible's here for them, and their, their intellect is up here. They're not quoting a lot of Bible, because they're smarter than the Bible. They've got, you're going to hear Compalo say, he's got his own God. How sad. It's this Christ. This is the only Christ that saves. Not one that anybody gets to invent, but the one that's revealed right here as in all of his glory as God, as God in flesh. So this is a, a wedding and a celebration, and I just want to, I'm going to back up to one that I flew over because it's such a good quote here. Uh, Calvin connects this to the Lord's Supper as an illustration You see, how do you get that? Just listen to what he says here. Calvin thought hard about Christ. Calvin says, by the way, we got a photo of him. Do you see that? Uh, Wine was important element of the Israelites' Passover feast. 
But at the Last Supper, Jesus gave the wine as a new significance. He made it a symbol of his own life-giving blood. Thus, the redemption of Christ was foreshadowed in the very first miracle that he performed. See, the Bible always takes us to the fulfillment of it in the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, there's, a, there's a wedding dinner coming up, and I want to ask you if you're invited. It's in the Revelation chapter 19. And in Revelation chapter 19, it describes a marriage of the Lamb and his bride. And it's spoken to us as a marriage supper of the Lamb. And there's only those who are the bride are going to be there, and there's only one way to be the bride of Christ. And that's to have trusted to Jesus Christ as your own Savior, having repented of sin and put your faith in Him. And if you're in Him today, we're going to be at that celebration one day. I agree with Marshall. I think it's going to be in heaven. But it's associated with Christ's return, coming back again, Revelation chapter 19. And and there's, there's going to be all the barbecue brisket you could ever want. It's going to be the best stuff you ever had. But if you're not in on that wedding celebration, you will be under the wrath of God, which is eternal. When Deborah and I were given the gospel, I thought that was very hard that he said I was a sinner. He said, Kevin, I would rather any day love you with the truth rather than not love you and telling you you're just fine. And by the authority of the Scriptures this morning, I would tell you, you're not fine at all unless you are in Christ. You want to be there, and the way to get there is to put your trust in Him and Him alone. And John says, isn't He something? Look at what He did at that glorious events, event of that wedding. Let's thank Him for it. And by the way, that miracle is not to tell us how Jesus is going to meet every need in your life, except unless you understand he'll meet the greatest need of forgiveness. Father, thank you for the wonder of these sign miracles. As we make our way through them, may we be anticipating seeing how this glory is on display and how it, how it burdens us to think you could see this And yet there was a time in our lives who are in Christ that were totally blind to all of this. Totally blind. Thinking about people who just take the Bible and they say, that can't be real because I can't explain it. That's what we're hearing in this American gospel, people that are smarter than God. Oh, please, humble us. Thank you for how great you are. In your image, being created in your image to know you and to worship you. And I, I pray that our worship of Christ may grow, our wonder of Christ may grow, our love for Christ, our love for the gospel may grow as we continue to look at him in action in this great gospel of belief. And I pray these things for your glory, Father, and for the good of your church.